This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Geekscapists, welcome to our brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan Lennon, your host. If this is your first Geekscape, well, strap yourselves in. We got a good one. This is the Lost in Space Netflix panel from San Diego Comic-Con 2022. I was asked to moderate this panel by Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, who you're going to hear on the panel. They're the two writers and creators of the Netflix version of Lost in Space. I'm very, very, very honored that they asked me to moderate it. I think it was a fun panel. And they had a blast. Uh, They said it went great. And they even said uh, working with us there here at Geekscape was a highlight of their weekend. Uh, Well, it was a highlight of my weekend, too. Uh, Matt and Burke are fantastic. You can actually hear them individually on the earlier episodes I put up, the daily episodes from the floor of San Diego Comic-Con. But this is our panel. Lost in Space, the Netflix version. I think it went great. Um, and you know what? Uh, I'm glad that I get to share it with y'all. So strap yourselves in. Explore more of the Geekscape content with your friends. Uh, share it with your friends. We do these things for free because we just like to share the excitement and the cool experiences like being at San Diego Comic Con 2022. This is the last of our San Diego Comic Con 2022 content. So um, Hang out on the feed and look for more Geekscape and maybe go through some old Geekscapes and explore those too. Here's the panel. Enjoy. Ready? We're ready. How many of y'all are Lost in Space fans from... <laughs> I was going to say from the Matt LeBlanc movie. Okay. Oh, we got one. Uh, how many of y'all are classic Lost in Space fans? Yeah. How many of y'all were like, ooh, Netflix is doing Lost in Space? I'll give it a chance. And then when you gave it a chance, it was awesome. I'm Jonathan London of Geekscape, and I want to introduce you to the two people who were a major part of making it awesome. And what we're going to do over the next couple of minutes, or really the next almost hour in this panel, is talk about the pieces that went into making it awesome, their approach to the series, and really we're going to walk you through pretty much the creative process, putting it together. I've got some videos, I've got some pictures that nobody's really seen outside of the production, <laughs> and we're going to be sharing a lot of that stuff with you guys today. But first, let me introduce my friends. Um, what do you think? This is Burke Sharpless, Matt Sazama. Y'all aren't strangers to Comic-Con, though, are you? Like, y'all have written genre movies, but this was your first foray into television as co-writers. Like, what are some of the movies that y'all wrote before Lost in Space? Well, all right. Lost in Space is the best thing we've done. Let's just start. <laughs> let's just start out there. Of the way. 
it's all it's all downhill from there. Um, I mean, which one? He likes Gods of Egypt. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Last Witch Hunter, Gods of Egypt. Dracula Untold. No no applause for Dracula Untold. No (laughs) applause for Dracula Untold. Thank you. And we've got to say it, Morbius. It's true. Yeah. (laughs) And because they're going to convince you how awesome they are in this next panel, y'all are all going to turn out for the Madame Web movie next year. All right? No, really. Listen, I love these guys. And I think over the next, uh, you know, 40, 50 minutes, y'all are going to fall in love with them too. But let's just start from the beginning. Let's find out what your entry was to Lost in Space. Like, were you all familiar with the show going into it? Were you fans of the show as kids? Like, what was your end to Lost in Space? How did, you all fir- how did it first come across your desk? Well, well there's the how, how it came across our desk and being fans as kids. Two separate questions. Okay. You would be talking about being fans as kids. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> when I was a kid... TV was just a thing that happened live that you couldn't stop or really even know when the show was coming on. So, <laughs> so when I was little, I never saw the beginnings of shows and didn't really understand most of the plots. But my two favorite shows were Star Trek and, and Lost in Space. They were very different shows. Star Trek made a lot of sense. They were adults. <laughs> they all knew each other. They were friends. They would then fight bad guys every week. That made, I, I got what the show was. Then there was Lost in Space which was not like that. First of all, they were not all adults. There was like a kid who was doing a lot of stuff, which is very intriguing because kids were doing things. There was a robot. Star Trek did not have a robot, I will say. But most of all, it had a really weird dude, and I couldn't tell if he was good or bad. And that was, of course, Dr. Smith. And it made the show really feel like a weird dream. And I never quite knew what was happening the way I did with Star Trek. And... Um, that was my experience of Star Trek, of, uh, of, Lost, of Lost in Space. It was just, it was like this, this incredibly uh, uh, half-remembered dream as a kid that was, but it was, it, it soaked into my, 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 my subconscious. That was super fun. Um, one of the things that, though, that people don't really know, a lot of super fans do, is the show had three seasons. Two, season one, totally different from seasons two and three. Everyone sort of remembers season two and three because it was in color and it was super acid trip crazy. That's what people remember from the show. However, season one was black and white and it was pretty serious. And um, I wasn't even that aware of it before we started working on the show. And um, a lot of our inspiration for the show really was the the, the black and white season one. So uh, how did we, how did it come across our desk? Yeah. well, we were coming out of movies and doing movies, and you're supposed to uh, do TV. Your agents always tell you that. And there were, there were three kinds of shows in those days. There was network shows that we didn't understand, cable shows that we half understood, and Game of Thrones. <laughs> Which you, we totally understood because it was just like movie happened when you turned it on. And we had a general meeting um, over at Legendary with... Uh, uh, a fan of ours uh, who we hadn't met until that date named Peter Johnson, who's here, so please. There he is. <laughs> L- L- Lost, Lost in Space would not have happened if not yeah. for Peter. So I'm giving him a lot of credit because there is no Lost in Space. You have these meetings and you talk and he's like, oh, you guys, are, you know, uh, we talked about feelings and skateboarding and Venice Beach and things and Star Wars socks. What's and weird is none of us can, stay, can skateboard at all. So <laughs> exactly. And so then he was like, it was, we were b- about to get up and he said, uh, uh, have you guys heard of Lost in Space? And we literally looked at each other and we were like, we need this job. 
and you you can tell tell when a brand is has sunk in because it gives you an emotion. And Matt and I use a term when we write, which is, does it give you a feeling? And if you share that feeling with an audience, that's when you have things like Star Wars, Aliens, all the movies that, that are why we're here. And we knew that Lost in Space had that feeling. So it's one of those great sort of moments when something just falls in your lap. And we were like, we want this. And, you know, we'll, we can talk a little bit about the process. But that was how it happened. It was, it was complete happenstance. We weren't able to pursue it, but we knew right away. I think we, like, walked to the parking lot, and we'd figured out by the time we got to the parking lot that the robot should be an alien. It was one of those things where within 45 minutes, what happens with us, things like the big ideas of the show just sort of came together. And how natural is that a process for you guys? Like, how, I mean, how long have you all been writing together? That's a good question. 15, 20 years? Long time. You have a joke about it. It's the Wisconsin, you always say the Wisconsin joke. Oh, that's right. <laughs> We're both from Wisconsin. So, hey, all right. Wisconsin's in the house. So we, um, and we lived in New York for a while, but we met in, in, in L.A. And um, it was, a, it was a, fr- a friend of a friend of ours, and he thought we would get along because we're both from Wisconsin. People from Wisconsin all get along, <laughs> which is true. You know, we read all the same comic books. We liked all the same movies. And uh, we were out, went out for coffee one day and thought of an idea for a movie. Thought it was pretty good. Decided to write it. It turned out great. We've been trying to make it for the last 18 years. Hmm. Um, if anybody's interested, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great Western set in Mexico. Um, but our second script was uh, the Dra- script called Dracula Year Zero, which became Dracula Unknown. And Unknown or Untold? Un- untold. I think we should have called it Dracula Unknown. <laughs> <laughs> they should have called it Dracula Year Zero is what they should have called right, it, which is the original title. title. But um, anyway, and that was the script that, that made our, our careers, yeah. and that's why, we're, that's why we're here now, actually. Okay. And so as you're walking through this parking lot, and you're already thinking about some, I think these are great changes. Let's take the robot, but let's actually make it an, like an alien life form that's robotic-like. What other changes are y'all starting to think about? Because obviously there's changes in the show, like uh, Mr. Smith, Dr. Smith becomes a Dr. Smith, but of a different, you know, she becomes a woman. He yeah. becomes a woman. Uh, well, there are, there are a few things going on. One, one was we wanted, all right, we love the original Lost in Space. But that was what a family was in the early 60s. And we were like, you know, it's now, you know, middle of the 21st century, and we need this, this show to represent what families are now. So that's where a lot of the changes came in. You know, obviously in the original show, you know, we loved the original Maureen Robinson, but she was literally, like, like you know, doing laundry. And that was not going to fly. So we definitely wanted Maureen to take a much more of a, you know, a bold role as the matriarch of the family. We, uh, we also want the family to uh, you know, reflect families are today, which is to have a blended family, which is where the, the idea, which our other producers really, you know, were on board with, of having Judy be biracial and be from a previous marriage, or pre- previous relationship, um, which again was something that more people could relate to with what we're doing today. And um, I guess the other big thing we really wanted to do was to, um, have, frankly, have gender parity in the show. And we have eight main characters. And part of that is why we obviously gender flipped Dr. Smith to being, uh, to being a woman. Oh, and by the way, the robot has no gender. Um, however, in the show, um, the robot becomes humanoid shaped by bonding with Will. And that is the only reason that the, the robot is sort of coded as, as male. And, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't think people know this. The, um, 
he takes the form of, of Will Robinson. Uh, the voice of the robot is actually uh, Maxwell Jenkins, who plays Will Robinson in the show. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, we, um, we, we, we wanted to work out because it was like everything he got, he was going to get from, from you know, the one human that he had bonded with. And uh, we tried out a bunch of actors, and we were hoping that he was going to do a great job. And that's, in fact, the voice. And, and you too can be auto-tuned into a robot if you like buy a product <laughs> called a, a sound studio. <laughs> and what, what were the things that you knew you couldn't change? Like those are the things that you were like, hey, let's update this. Let's maybe conform some of these things to a new uh, era. But what were the things that you were like, this? This is not negotiable. These things have to be. These, these, if we change this, it breaks lost in space. Well, you know. Every time you do an adaptation, there's sort of an isness that you embrace that is, you can change things a lot, but if you go super hardcore changing things, especially things like tone and the emotional connection, the feeling that it gives an audience, you unfortunately don't have that thing anymore. And we've all seen it in movies that we love or like when there's a remake that doesn't give us what we want. When we talk to uh, Kevin Burns, who is very important to mention his name, and John Jashney, who were the rights holder producers, so who kind of were the gateway along with Peter for us to get into this job uh, at Legendary and then independent of Legendary, but it's like kind of a team. It was very important that to Kevin, who grew up with the show, that it give him the same feeling that he had when he was young watching it, which is that he wished that they were his family. And Matt and I really took that to heart because you don't need to make sort of corny characters to wish people your family. In fact, the more like have they have edges and overcome aspects that are tough in them and come together and create catharsis, the more you like kind of feel like you've joined in in that catharsis. So the entire idea of the show that was never going to change was that it was a family show and we defined family show by being about family was I Aspirational, that's the word, that, that the family dynamic was aspirational, that in the end, family overcame everything. I mean, there's a lot of other things that I could talk about that we wanted to keep that were like looks and vibes, but that was what we always talked about. It's true. Well, one other thing was that um, family is also obviously not just your biological family. Mm -hmm. Family is also the people that you meet along the way. And obviously in Lost in Space, you know, the family grows to, you know, include even Dr. Smith, even a robot, even, of course, Don West. I think the word aspirational is important right now in television, right? I think that's the number one word they use to describe shows like Ted Lasso. Yeah. And so I think there's a swing, especially in the times that we live in, that's like, hey, let's go back to the TV to feel good about ourselves. And so in a way, the loss of space really was on the crest of that wave of television that we have now that just you sit down and I just want to feel good for an hour watching an episode. So credit to you guys for doing that and not going the grim and gritty lost in space. Now yeah. they're really lost. It's true. <laughs> it was almost like, I mean, with our show, like it was a drinking game, how many hugs there would be. You tried to contain it, but the cast would just do it. And then, you know, you'd be in the, and you'd be in the editing room and you'd be like, that's such a good hug. Should we keep it? Well, we still have another one in Act 3. That's okay. <laughs> that's not to say that the, that the show didn't have real stakes, right? Like, so there's a, some tone balance you'll have to play here. Where, yes, the, the, the robot bonds with the kid, and there's love between the family, but everything on the planet is trying to kill them. Oh, yeah. Including, at first, the robot. And that sequence I want to talk about is the one in the, in the tree, where it, the, in that pilot. That is a, that's actually a really scary sequence. 
Yeah, I mean, you guys have seen the show. Obviously, we tried to kill everybody every single episode. <laughs> Things always went wrong. I remember early on, they were like, is something bad going to happen every episode? We're like, yeah, at least one bad thing is going to happen every episode. Um, I mean, we, you, you, you want people to think that something terrible is going to happen. Um, they're obviously going to get out of it. But um, the, 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 the tree scene that you're talking about is funny because it was, it was the most important scene in the pilot. Because if, if you didn't believe this... You weren't going to believe anything. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at it, so, all right, Maxwell Jenkins, who plays Will Robinson, was 11 when we started shooting. He turned 12 while we were filming. So he was a small 11. But he was growing fast. So we started shooting It's like that. a centimeter, centimeter a week. Yeah. <laughs> so, he outgrew the tree, you told me. What? At one point. He grew out faster than the tree. So you really I had know, to shoot this thing much. fast. So that, that scene, we kept reshooting it and refilming aspects of it because it had to be just right. So it's a little bit like, you know, if you watch The Wizard of Oz, like Dorothy's hair keeps, like, changing. <laughs> if you watch that scene, he literally, I think, ages. It's, like, six months from when we we've started shooting it to, like, the last shots are. He visibly, visibly ages um, within individual shots in that thing because we had to get it right. Well, what about the design of the robot? Because you all were telling me that the robot went through a series of, like, uh, tests, like, like, getting it right. Because there's a lot of ways to do it, but you ultimately have to believe it. And obviously there's CGI. You could use all sorts of hybrid technology, like a miniature or CGI, or uh, ultimately a man in a suit. When I watch it, it's not very convincing that that's a man in a suit. It's pretty incredible, especially the, the tree sequence where it's going through multiple transformations as it tries to get to Will. Um, can you talk to, tell the story about the man, about the suit and making it believable, but also making it very alien? Uh, yeah, and I have some AV for this. Yeah. Yes, we we were do a little demonstration of some stuff of what we did with. So Burke and I felt really strongly that we wanted. Well, first of all, uh, can we throw up the first picture of the old robot? Yeah, here's the old robot from the show we grew up with. There it is. We we love the old robot. Man, man it, yes, man in suit. Man in suit or CGI, you decide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a man in suit. And, and Burke and I were like, so, you know, talking about how to upgrade, you know, or update something. Uh, the robot is humanoid shaped and has a, a glass face that has sort of twinkling stars in it, which is, to us, was the most iconic part of the robot. So we wanted our robot to have a face that had this, this like, galaxy of stars that, that went through it. Um... You, know, you can show the next, the next yeah. slide. Yeah, so this is a, a robot as we start to see it, so, right? That's what you end up with? Yes. Um, but that, that's, that's a little story with that one. Yeah, this is actually the, fir- the first time that Max met the robot in costume, the very first time. It was wow. their meeting. It, turned out, it looks just like the poster from the, from the show. Yeah, well, we did a neat thing where he didn't see images of it, so he met the robot having never seen the robot before, so he could react to it. And he was a little kid. I mean, he was so bowled over, and that was like the essential relationship of the show. So, you know what? Uh, keep going. So, oh, you know what? You let, let, wanna... let, let's go like two back. There was a okay. picture of the robot in the sort of before that. This or, one? No, uh, that so, one. And if you can see, so, all right. We have, we have a man in a suit who's a, an actor named uh, Brian Steele who is a tremendous, tremendous actor. He's made his career being the guy in the suit. But he, I mean, he's almost like uh, one of these classic uh, silent film actors that he does so much with his body. I, I, we, we can't say enough about, about how, 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 what a talented uh, artist he is. Um, but when we had the suit finished, we did the first test, and it's, 
he's in incredible shape, but just to stand was like holding a yoga pose. And it was so, it was putting out so much energy and, and effort that you could like literally see his chest like breathing. And we're like, oh my God, it's obviously a guy in a suit. What are we gonna do about this? This is a, this is a disaster. So um, we then had the idea, not we, uh, it's probably Jabbar, Jabbar Raisani, who is our visual effects supervisor, who we can't say enough good about. If you look in the middle of the robot here, you can see a little bit of green in his, the front here. So we had the idea to um, punch a hole in the middle of him. And therefore, when you looked at it, because there's negative space built into the robot's arms, where you can see right through the robot, and that would make, trick your eye just enough that you're like, obviously, it can't be a guy in a suit because I'm looking right through it. And it was a really small trick. And then all of the breathing and all the other stuff that, that Brian as the actor was doing just looked like weird robot stuff that was happening because it obviously couldn't be real. So we actually have a couple clips um, from the show where you can see right through the robot in a way that it tricks your eye, which is why everyone believes the robot is real. No, we can just talk through it. Yeah, so, there's the, it's not, it's you can see sound. over. This is obviously from the pilot. Mm-hmm. There you go. There it is. That's all digital. And then that's, that's not, but his gut is. And there's a another really good shot here, where you just let it play. You can see the spaceship through his tummy. And it was all those shots that was sort of just enough to trick your eye into thinking that there's obviously couldn't be anyone in the suit because you could see right through it. So when you were filming these scenes, you would just do the, the, the entire scene and then pull the robot out and then refilm the entire scene without it to get the plates of what was happening behind him in all those, all those scenes. So, and that's a motion-controlled camera that's running through the same scene at the same time? Or did no, you? it wasn't even motion control. It was just you yeah. shot it again, and I don't know how they do it. It's incri- <laughs> that's incredible. It's called VFX and stuff. That yes. is incredible. And so when you start to strip the robot away to create that negative space so we can see beyond it, clearly that's not a person. I mean, how many of y'all watched the, the robot and thought, there's no man in that suit, I can see through his stomach? A couple of people, right? I'm not the only person who was like, wait a minute here. It's incredible. <laughs> it's a really smart solution. Um, so... Uh, what were the changes that you didn't anticipate? Was there anything in that that you start to go into production or some of these concepts and pieces of artwork start to have to be filmed like this one um, that you're like, oh, that's a change we actually didn't anticipate and it maybe made the show better. Some happy surprises maybe. We should take a moment to introduce the rest of the show as in Zach, etc. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, instead of answering your question... Yeah, we're going to segue. <laughs> do whatever you but want. We'll come back. You know, we, 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 something we, we always forget, we... we we off, all right, the two of us are up here. Obviously, we represent a lot of incredible people who make this show. And um, just to talk about the other writers who we worked with, because we were, we were privileged enough to work with essentially the same writing team uh, for all three seasons, which is great. And it's uh, Vivian Lee, Carrie Drake, Catherine Collins, Dan McClellan. And um, season one, we were with uh, the great Ed McCarty. And season two, Liz Segal. And also our, uh, our fabulous showrunner, uh, Zach Estrin, who we'll talk more about later. Actually, we can do it now, because I'll just very quickly, and it, well, then we'll come back to that. So, uh, Peter, 
<laughs> who's sitting over there. Our show gets bought by Netflix. By the way, straight to season, it's like this never happens. I mean, you're, you're living the dream. And I still remember walking out of some meeting with uh, Netflix, and, and it's like, you know, it's happening. And he looks at us, he's like, so <clears throat> you guys, you know you've never show run a show before. And we're like, no. And he's like, there's like beads of sweat on his forehead. Do you want to? Of course, the, if we say yes, that's a horrible series of events that will inevitably happen. And we're like, are you kidding? And he's like, okay, good. So what we're going to do, and he'd already set it up. He's like, so what we're going to do is we're going we're to interview showrunners who will be your boss. And uh, we talked to a couple different people. I'd have to go down the rabbit hole to remember who... Uh, none the, of them were any good yeah, except for Zach. None of them were any good with him. And then he walks who in, and immediately he, he's, like, so cool. He's, like, so hip. He's, like, so... He did Prison Break. He's, like, a superstar, like, way up here, like a mega TV guy. And he's, like, you know, I wasn't... You know, he's the kind of guy who's, like, his overall deal at ABC was over, so he's going to take some time off to think about what he did. By the way, we don't do this. We just keep working. We're, like, when is our next job? And... Uh, and, and he's like, I read your pilot, and it reminded me of being a kid, and I wanted to do the show. So it was amazing, and um, I don't think this happens that often. We're the creators, and we worked with a guy who's the showrunner, and showrunners do a specific set of impossible-to-do things, and they're like, they're like Zeus above Earth. And we work together as a team, executive producing the show and being on set and doing everything as a three-headed monster all the way through to the last episode. And that is very unique... And essentially, we hired our boss, and he did what we said. That's incredible. Which really was great. He basically did what we said, except every once in a while, he would sort of not, and then I would get all pissy. Well, the, 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 <laughs> but the, he was always right. The best thing that Zach did is to uh, be the tiebreaker. Because, because we only like go places. after each other. <laughs> we, if we can't make a decision, usually then Zach would agree with me. And then we'd save a lot of time yeah. that way. But y'all were new to television, and there was a learn. I mean, there's got to be a learning curve, and it's really risky for y'all to come in and have a showrunner above you who can say, you know what, they're not, they're not getting it enough, or they don't have enough experience. But instead, he went the other way, and he was actually a big champion of yours, right? And actually, like, really helped kind of shepherd well, y'all through this new process for you yeah. coming. Remember features. that. Remember that part I said where the only kind of show that I understood was Game of Thrones. <laughs> we were like, let's do that, and Netflix weirdly gave us all the money that existed at the time, and so we were able to do things that didn't have normal act breaks, and episodes would feel like mini movies, and we could do like mo fancy movie stuff with VFX. And we could do a bunch of things that we understood and like team up to try to like do a different kind of show. Which, by the way, there are a lot of streaming shows like this right now. But when we were first coming in, there was really no model for Lost in Space. Then um, Stranger Things hadn't come out, so right. it was like there was no there was no version of this. So we would keep saying, "Oh, in movies we do this," and then people would be like, "Okay," <laughs> and, and that could make a lot of people nervous. But in this case, was that it's like one plus one equals three on that one because you had the TV experience and the film experience, and I think we saw the results on screen. It turned out to be a really great show. Thank you. And it could have been totally conflicted. It could have been the pace could have been conflicted. There's a lot of ways where those two worlds could have turned into something else. Um, I have a question here. Um, we talked about. I was like, what over? What hurdles did you overcome getting into it? Uh, okay. Um, the pilot. Um, we were talking about giving um, analysis on um, how. Let's see. I'm literally going to write the question. I don't want. I don't want to read the question out loud, but I, I'll actually have to do it. Um, 
You're doing great. Yeah. What was the crux of making... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we talked about family. The the thing is, we had written out this outline. We did like a a Zoom. And we're actually just kicking through it naturally. And now I'm going back and being like, hey, well, what else haven't you asked? Because it's great. But I actually want to throw to some of this this AV stuff. But I also want to leave room for y'all. In season two, or going from season one to season two, season three, how much of those over, like, those seasons were arced out in that first initial story that that led you to the pilot, that led you to, okay, this will be season one. How far did y'all get knowing that you had a season order, but then there was two subsequent seasons after that? Right. Well, I mean, coming from the movie side, Brooke and I always write towards endings, so we always knew what the ending was. We also... You know, our ideal version of the show was going to be three seasons, like a three-act story. It has a beginning, middle, and end, which is what we ended up doing. Thank, thank God Netflix did not cancel <laughs> us before the plan ended. Um, so we always knew what the end of the show was going to be. You know, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the end of the show, um, we always knew that unlike the original show, they were going to get Alpha Centauri. It was not going to be a joke. It was not going to be a weird... And know, then they wake it's up... It's all a dream. Yeah, they wake up on Earth. <laughs> Um, we, we, we wanted to give them that resolution that the original show, frankly, didn't have. And um, we knew the last shot was going to be Will and the Robot off on the next adventure because even though this version of the this, of this show was going to end, you know, the, the adventures would continue. But, but really, it was, um, you know, the kids were going to grow up. This is a story about you know, the kids growing up. And in real life, you know, they, they, you know, talking about Max, he was getting older and older. That once we'd run out of time and they were, you know, old, that was going to be the end of the show. And we didn't want to have them be, you know, 29 years old trying to play teenagers. Or anything. <laughs> well, I mean, not yeah. knocking Stranger Things, which kicks ass, but, like, they're all, like, 38 now. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see the episode where Will's like, can you turn into a car to the robot? <laughs> so you have cruising. Um, but that being said, y'all are feature guys. Y'all outline things, but now suddenly you have, a, a, like, you, as you're saying, you wrote the ending... What about outlining and filling in the blanks? Where, how did y'all pace that out? What's well, you, the learning curve on that? It's, it's like it's wonky writer room stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you just you come in like what, the way it worked is that Matt and I during the summer when Zach was doing post and color timing and all the really hard things that were his job, we would write a treatment for the following season mm. and come in and pitch it to him. And like it was very tense, you know, it would be like a one hour pitch where we'd pitch season two. And sort of, he would be sitting there, usually like tired from and, his and job. saying, "Thank God you have ideas." He's tired, yeah. but you and think he would he's say, "Thank so God well. you have ideas." And then we would, and then what happens with that? That that was like you know, a couple months of work on our part, and then it would get distilled, torn apart, and then rebuilt by the writers' room. Um, you know, we didn't have everything. Like if I sit here and say, like huge ideas, we didn't have. Oh, hey, I have a good story. Okay, not to interrupt you. Um, so. Very early on, we were meeting with uh, uh, Kevin Burns, so our executive producer we mentioned before, and we were watching um, clips of the old show. And he showed us this clip, um, and it was one of the black and white episodes, and it was simply John and Marine having they had an opportunity to send their kid off oh, yeah, with yeah, yeah, war yeah. notes, which yeah. you would never do. <laughs> but in the show, it was like, we have a chance to send them off, and maybe they'll be safe and they can go to Earth, but then we're going to miss them, right? What are we going to do? And we thought it was so moving. Because um, you think of the show as oftentimes the 60s color version of being like super crazy, but here was this, 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 this really wrenching sort of family um, question of, of what's the best way to be a parent. 
And we were like, this is the end of season two. Yeah. Hmm. It's this true. is what we're going to do. We're going to test them of what happens if the Robinson stick together. That's literally the theme of the show. It's what we believe in real life. And we're like, that's, what we're gonna, that, that's, that's the low point. What happens if, if the family breaks up? And it was directly inspired by this clip from the old show that we just found, found to be so moving. And, you know, and there's that scene that, like, I can't watch without crying, where, like, Molly, you know, who plays Maureen, like, she can't even talk to her husband about letting the kids go, and she just, like, collapses in his arms, and it's, like, super lit behind it. And I remember watching it being like, well, we've been writing towards that for two years. That's incredible. So in trying to find those goalposts that are going to keep yeah. kind of keeping your season afloat mm-hmm. in pacing it out, you went to the original text, which is, I think, a testament and, and proof that why we all loved it as being really faithful to the original and why old fans, I think, embrace this new one. It has a lot of it wrapped into it, including there was a, a chimpanzee in the original mm-hmm. all right. show. So uh, let, let's, we're talking about, uh, we forgot one of our key characters, which is, of course, Debbie, the, the chicken. chicken. Um, let's go back. So <laughs> Here's Debbie, the chicken. So, yeah, let's hear for the, the, original, the original Debbie. Okay. Let's go back. So, I don't know how many of you know this. This this was the original Debbie, uh, which was not unlike our our Debbie, also a live animal (laughs) that was on set. And um, so, the the whole chicken thing, because I remember I I was a big proponent of this chicken. I was like, there's going to be a chicken that's going to show up. I think I fought with him about the chicken. Is that a Wisconsin thing? Is it like a Wisconsin thing? Like a farm thing? No, he wanted the chicken. I was like, we're not putting a chicken on the show. I thought it it would be funny and surreal (laughs) and unexpected. And um, Burke disagreed, <laughs> and luckily Zach agreed with me, only because he said at network TV they would never allow me to do a chicken. <laughs> Therefore, because I'm on Netflix, there are no rules, we can do the chicken. That was back when Netflix didn't even give notes. <laughs> so, um, but uh, we can go forward to the okay. actual Debbie. There's the, Debbie. Um, it's part of, I mean, it's one of the reasons we love the original show, because it was just super crazy. And There's surreal. Mina. So... Um, you Mina know, loving the chicken. It, it was a way for us to also honor the original in a little, <laughs> in a little uh, Easter egg for, for super fans. What's next? So now you got yourselves a chicken. I'm, right. Now I'm, I'm going through the AV so we can get to audience questions, too. So let, let's, ex, let's so there's ex- like another with some of these. Um, we got a star bear. We got okay, a let's do the doll. star bear okay. anecdote. So start with dude in suit. Okay. Here's the dude in the so, suit. There you go. Just stop. So nothing against that individual. But... Uh, we, episode five, we, you know, because we were trying to be like, oh, practical's cool. We can totally do things practical. And the team, we built a suit and a guy in a monster suit. And then we started to get the dailies back. I think it was the one time that I was, like, actually in trouble on set. is because I was delivering dailies of the, that guy in the suit, which he was trying to perform, like, attacking uh, John and Don in the back of a truck and, like, it was literally, like, something from the original show, inadvertently, which is why we're showing it. It was, like, very B-movie Plan 9 from Outer well, Space. He, he was super... I mean, it was a guy on his hands and knees. So he was, like, this <laughs> it was low. So, it was, like, Stonehenge. The Stonehenge thing. What's that movie? With, uh, Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. He was, like, way <laughs> too small. And they were in the back of the chariots. So they were, like, way up there. And they were, like, trying to be menaced by this guy who's, like, six feet below him. <laughs> But after the, the robot gave you all some confidence. You're like, oh, man, it's suit. It worked great with the robot. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, all about, like, it's all about practical. We were, like, really cocky. We're so, like, oh, cool. 
Then it turned out that we were part of this era of filmmaking and we were able to actually have enough money. I think we got in trouble, maybe they gave us extra money, to do a, a VFX sequence with this that you should put on just to yeah. show you. Yeah. So there's from that. Yeah, this had to be totally redone with CGI. Okay, let me find it. There was the Star Bear right there. Star the, Bear. If we can dim the lights? If there's no sound, we. By might. the way, we called him the Star Bear. Okay. <laughs> Let's just. Just the, also the name of our, our cover band. Okay, I'm just going to dim the lights here, and here it is. So this is just. There is the Star Bear. Is it dark? Or is it my angle? It's a dark sequence. It is a dark sequence. Why did this cost Why? so much money? It's really dark. It's really dark. <laughs> I think it's too dark. It is too dark. I'm, that was too dark. But that's okay. I did bump up my, yeah. So basically you have this CGI monster coming in, and it, it, it's fully CGI. Yeah. There's no man in suit. Yeah, that's like classic. You have an excellent VFX team who just builds it. And did that feel like defeat to you, or like, no, whatever gets the job done? It felt done. like defeat until we saw it. <laughs> and I was like, that looks pretty good. <laughs> No, it looks great. I mean, it was dim, but it obviously looks like anything that would come out of a Jurassic World or a Jurassic World. I mean, this, the VFX looks legitimate. Like, it looks really good. Um, and those are places where if it doesn't work, which the man in the suit would have done, I mean, nobody would have been scared of that, <laughs> then the, your narrative doesn't work. Like, at any place where there's a little bit of air, like a little hole, the air comes out of it. Um, but there were also times when y'all were challenged by budget, and y'all had creative reasons for that, and there is an actual dark shot, and we're going to show it, um, but the dark shot kind of saved y'all. Do you want to talk about the one where it was kind of minimalist? Yeah, well, because we now had to do CGI, it, it, the scene commitments got too expensive, and it was too short. So, uh, yeah. we refilmed the new scene. It was directed by uh, Jabbar Rasani, who was our VFX supervisor. He also... Uh, directed one of the best episodes of season two and the, the series finale. Well, uh, can you dim the lights? Uh, that was, yeah. So, so basically, to, to save money, we did this tense scene with Mina that is all shadow and sound. Of course, the, it seems like we won't, we won't have the sound, which is too bad. And this is a pretty minimalist scene. Like, you can see there's... Can only... you guys see it out in the audience? Yeah. Oh, I but, but, you know, before we, before we show yeah. this, let's show what the actual guy behind, what, what they're going to see. So okay, the so here guys. is, you want these stills, correct? Yeah. Okay, here are the stills. So, it's just two guys connected with sort of like a piece of um, cloth to keep them together. So, you have two feet, of sort of like, a, uh, like the worst horse costume of all time. <laughs> And there's a guy with a broom who's going to push the tent. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So th this, this is what we were reduced to uh, for our, our VFX because we'd run out of money for so the, you, the CGI. So, so you see the shoes, the, 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 the shoes they've got on right here and a broom. So I, I wish it had sound because the sound really makes the next scene. But we'll see. Okay. All right. Yeah, it doesn't really work without sound. We might have to make sound effects. Yeah, we can okay. act it out. Feel free to make sound effects if you want. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, what's, what's that? Do I see a shadow behind her? This is super dark. It is dark and But yeah, they're, they're, imagine incredibly well, well done um, monster growling sound, sound effects. It's super tense. It's like the... This is also a great example of how important sound is in, um, <laughs> in, in, uh, in movies. And Mina's face. 
It's almost one of those examples of less is more on something like that, and this is way less, and it actually is more with the sound design. <laughs> and the, I mean, that's kind of crazy, going from something like a heavily CGI creature to immediately scenes later having something that almost looks like something that would be on a student set, you know what I mean, where it is literally a broom and some fake feet walking mm-hmm. along to create it. Um, and it also, obviously in this panel, shows the importance of sound design. <laughs> but your team, was, your team in this thing was amazing. How yes. much did y'all learn? And as a writer, like, how much of this is going to follow y'all back into the feature world? Le- what lessons did y'all learn in Lost of Space that you can carry on to the features? If there's any. Like, I'm, a, I'm literally just asking out of my own self-interest. <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah, out of so my own the interest, question yeah. is, is what would I take to features? Yeah. Let me be in charge of my own dialogue all the way to the end. <laughs> and then it's good. So the last, the last AV I've got here is the Will doll. Okay. How do we want to prep that? And then I think we can start lining up for audience yeah. questions. This is only this just, is just funny. Yeah, go 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 to the the first uh, the sort of what about that? Yeah, you want to see one. his face? Yeah. Or you see? yeah, that one. Okay. This one, right? Yeah. Okay. Here's the Will doll. Hey, go, go to the one of his face. So that's okay. not, that's not, yeah, we're in the wrong order. You're in the wrong order, that's fine. So, all right, we thought it'd be, so, uh, you know, with, with kid actors, you can only shoot for so many hours because of the law. So, I, I can't remember whose idea it was. It was like, well, if we have a really lifelike uh, Will doll, <laughs> we can, like, put it in the background and we can keep shooting. It, 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 it worked about as well as you think it did. <laughs> Which is, so we never, so all we ended up having was this, you the picture of, of the doll with, with uh, Max? Okay, here it is. Which one did you want to see? I'm sorry. Uh, him, the doll and Max. Okay. So you can see. It's pretty realistic looking. Uh, the other way. So there, there, there we go. So yeah. Obviously it's terrifying. So, <laughs> so there was just this super weird, lifelike Will doll, like sitting around the set. And I don't know who... People started like posing it in different places, and you would think there was someone sitting there. And it was so. I have, to this day, I have no idea who was who was putting it. You can find it one of the pictures. And Burke, you didn't get one of these made for yourself, did you? That's a rumor. <laughs> <laughs> so there, that's like somebody set that up as a joke. It was just that's you just the will walk by, and, and you'd be like, "Why is Max there?" But it, but if you see that out of the corner of your eyes, you're gonna jump. <laughs> it was you're super really gonna creepy. freak out. If the union person sees out of the corner of her eyes and wonders why that kid is actor is still on set, they're really going to freak out. <laughs> and the worst part is, it vanished, and no one knows where it is. Is that true? No. <laughs> <laughs> we all turn around just sitting it's a, it's in the back it's actually, be, it's actually behind you, Burke. <laughs> well, uh, we've, got re- we've got about 15 minutes left. I think the best way to spend them... I did yeah. want to ask you all about like, the legacy of the show, like if you all had any regrets of it, but really I think we should throw to the people in line and let's the fans because this is really let's what Comic Con's all about. So let's have some audience questions. I've been a fan of Lost in Space since the original. Thank you for not screwing up the reboot. <laughs> uh, two questions. One, why did you, how did you come to make the decision to base your pilot on the original unaired pilot, No Place to Hide? And second, um, why did you choose to make John Robinson a, marine, uh, a military man instead of a scientist? Thanks. Which one do you want to... Well, I, you talk about the No Place to Hide a little bit. Um, the, 
the, we were, because of our influence by Kevin Burns and because uh, he was sort of like a shepherd of the show, he had us watch those um, initial show uh, episodes as influence. And um, there were just some really good pieces of, of material there to like weave in. And it felt like since we were doing an authentic remake, we should use plot points. And we have the weather and we have eventually we got to like alien ruins, a lot of different stuff. It just, I mean, we wanted to make sure that our show really was lost in space. And that is something that we took very seriously. So where we could, um, we, uh, we used elements from the, mostly just the first season. As, as for the, the whole military thing, it was honestly, one of the goals with the show was to have as many people as possible find some connection to some of the characters. And there are a lot of people in the military, and it, it, it seemed like a great opportunity just to, to shine a light on, on, on people that have that background. And to be honest, I mean, neither of us are in the military, but we got a lot of um, people who it, those scenes really spoke to them. And that made us feel really good. So um, that's that. It was just try, <laughs> trying, trying to be as inclusive as we could with the show. That's a good, pretty good reason, I think. Um, next question. Yeah, hi. So um, Jeff Janik, I'm from Dallas, Texas. So I wanted to say hello. And I loved your, your version of the show. Absolutely Thank loved you. it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very so much. much. And, uh, yeah. And in fact, because of that, it was, I felt it was way too short. It should have been going, should still be going. And um, yeah, damn it, I want more. Uh, so what are the plans? We saw, of course, Will Robinson disappear and drive off into the sunset, so to speak, with a robot. Uh, future episodes, future series, future... What, what, what does that hold? Where are we going with this? I want more. Uh, I'm glad you want more. Um, there's no more forthcoming, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, we feel very honored that we had the opportunity to do three seasons on Netflix with the budget that we had, with the cast that we had. Um, there, there are no plans to do anything else. You know, we wanted to sort of leave it open to, you know, the imagination of people to think of what, what might happen next. But to be, to be perfectly honest, um, ours is not the first reboot of Lost in Space, it should not be the last reboot of Lost in Space. Hopefully there'll be a few more years that we've got. <laughs> but um, one of the things that Burke and I talk about is this, is this is an evergreen story. I mean, even Irwin Allen, who, by the way, did create Lost in Space, just so everyone's aware of that, the great Irwin Allen, uh, he himself was rebooting Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a classic story that can and should be told over and over again. Ours is the current one, but it's certainly it won't be the last. Right. But thank, thank you, I, I, you know... Well, call Netflix and get them on the ball. Okay. <laughs> Stop sharing your password and maybe... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> next question. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. I'll be over here. Uh, my question is, um, did Dr. Smith really change or was all her motivation selfish? And if she did, where was the pivot point and kind of what was her motivation? What made her change? I'm just going to make you talk about Dr. Smith. She was your mature character. I love, I love Dr. Smith, <laughs> and I love, I love Parker's, Parker's interpretation. Oh, by the way, just fun, fun fact. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Dr. Smith before I answer your question, because um, I think everybody's interested in her. Um, she was the one character that Burke and I really didn't have a handle on in the pilot, because the pilot that you saw is, is, is what we wrote. Um, 
Except for the Dr. Smith, we didn't, is, is she an alien? Who, what, what's going on with her? And uh, just to give credit to uh, Catherine Collins, one of the writers in the writer's room, who had the idea to be inspired by uh, the talented Mr. Ripley. And to us, that uh, unlocked the whole, the whole character uh, for us. Um, also, it's funny, uh, Parker Posey, in real life, loved Dr. Smith as a kid growing up. She loved Lost in Space. And we're like, when we, we first were talking to her about the role, and she said, oh, I love Dr. Smith. I really want to play this role. Since I was a little girl, I've been obsessed with him. We're like, really? That's amazing. <laughs> so she brought everything to this role. Um, you know, Dr. Smith uh, obviously made a lot of bit poor life choices. Uh, we always <laughs> thought that she had a good heart. We always thought that, that she could, you know, come back from her mistakes. And this, which is why in the pilot... I guess in episode two, uh, the person that, that gets killed, it was not, it was, you know, the hesitation, it wasn't intentional. Which is why we tested her in the finale. So finally, you have a, a, this, are you going to actually kill Captain Raddick? Uh, and she's struggling with this, and then of course the robot steps in and, uh, and helps her make the right decision. So uh, we think, we hope, She's going to make better life choices after she gets out of jail. Because, um, you know, part, part of the show is that, you know, people can change and yeah, you can be that the was best, the whole theme, the the best version of yourself. And, um, you know, when she serves her time, uh, we, we, hope, we hope for the best. <laughs> so who would win in a fight between the robot or a Klingon in an armored spacesuit? Clearly the robots. Yeah, come on. Clearly the robots. <laughs> Klingons don't have a chance. I have another robot question. Uh, thank you again for designing what I believe is the most gorgeous, sexiest robot ever on screen. Here we go. <laughs> and do you have plans to display him anywhere as TV uh, history? And if not, I volunteer my house in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> I think that the, the, the robot suit has shown up a few times at different events, actually. It, it, it got, it got, there, there was an or auction. Was, someone, someone bought the robot. I know. I know. Because you kept right, trading your passwords for Netflix. <laughs> Stop it. I want that person's number. <laughs> so I might have been the only one to raise my hand about the movie and the remake because I, I was 12 and Lacey Chabert was in it so that kind of added to it but you mentioned before about the, the re- reboots in the past and there's going to be reboots in the future did you feel any kind of pressure having been kind of not the first but along that line for it and trying to make sure that you, you kept it to the level that you wanted to for that there's enormous pressure like you don't sleep and you vomit all the time <laughs> I think that are you talking about the previous reboot as in the movie or just reboots yeah. in general? The one that I, I brought me into was definitely the movie, so I'm just curious what you thought about it. I saw the yeah. movie in the theater. I remember it was so funny because I actually thought it was okay at the time. Yeah. You know, I think all the people who worked on that movie, it's like two Oscars and, no, three Oscars if you include Akiva Goldsman that are affiliated with that movie. And it's, it's okay and it's not bad sci-fi. If it was called like, you know, the family, action family time a different title. I think that it, the only thing, not to critique it, was that it didn't quite make you love the family as that sort of dictum right. that we had brought to it, yeah. where they didn't quite, they felt like edgy 
even though there's a lot of cool beats in that movie, more or less, especially the, the, the time plot. So I think the pressure was mostly how do you keep the tone? How do you, you just you try to breathe the tone? You try to live the tone? How do you make sure that Will Robinson doesn't give in to something that doesn't feel like who he is, that doesn't feel like Billy Moomy would have done it? You know, there's this idea of that there's this... It's like, it, you know, we all know this, like, is it track? Sometimes you watch something that's track and it, ah, it doesn't quite feel like track and somebody's like, that's, that's track. And we wanted this to feel like no matter what we did with different episodes and we pushed things as much as we could, it always felt like lost in space. Yeah. Sort of a gut check. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, as a woman in STEM, I want to thank you for Maureen. I've never seen a character like her, a woman like her, get to be that logical and that hard sometimes. So you spoke a little bit about how you wanted to make her a matriarch and give her a different role. Can you speak a little bit more if you had some inspirations or kind of guidance to make such an amazing character? Thank you very much. We're Maureen super fans. She was pretty much our way into the show, to be honest, I think. To be honest, this is the first thing we talked about, was her being the lead, her being flaw, allowed to be... This, this idea that women characters are allowed to be flawed. Like, it's okay. It's okay to have all of the hero's journey flaws that they give to Don... Why can Don Draper be one way or, you know, uh, all these, like, cool super TV characters and often the women are, like, forced to enable them to have their own catharsis? And we were like, wouldn't it be neat if she was the one who everybody's like, God, can we get her to get her act together so she can save us because she's basically a genius. And we just let her be the hero. We just let her own the show along with uh, Will. And she just sort of wrote herself. Plus, Molly is like a super ultra actress and just kept making it better and better. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Hi. I love the casting. It's absolutely fabulous. But it was good to see Billy Mummy in a few of the episodes as well. And that was a nice little Easter egg that you threw in, and I really appreciate that. Uh, thanks. I mean, we, we, uh, uh, honestly, yes. The, the original cast was so great. They were so generous with us. We were so thankful that they agreed to, like, be in our show. Um, I, I will say the only regret that we had is we had plans for the rest of the cast, uh, to cameo in season three, and COVID made that unfortunately be impossible. Mm. Yeah, we had uh, amazing scenes for everybody, and it just could, we couldn't do them. We had them written. Um, however, uh, I don't know if anyone picked up on this. Uh, June Lockhart does have a voice cameo in um, the second to last episode. The voice that the computer voice that that welcomes the Robinsons, Alpha Centauri, is actually June Lockhart. <laughs> well. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that in closing, my question is just like knowing that y'all are a part of a show, that's a remake, and then that you said there'll be another remake later on because it's a classic story. How do you want your Lost in Space to be remembered? That's hard. <laughs> Too bad, it's Comic Con. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to answer this. Okay, good. <laughs> He always does. <laughs> so when we were first pitching the show, um, this was, you know, like seven years ago, uh, we had this idea that families could watch the show together. And at the time, people said, that's not how, no one watches TV like that anymore. No one makes time. 
And we're like, I don't know. I think, I think you know, we could try. And Netflix was the only, the only company that we talked to that said we would kind of like this to happen also. And um, some of the numbers that we, we got back indicated that was the, the case. But mostly it's been anecdotal evidence from people that I talked to who are like, this is the only show that I can watch with my family. And that is, it means so much to us. Yeah. Well, I think I can agree with every single person in this room that y'all delivered on that. That's how it's going to be remembered. And I think y'all should find every friend who hasn't watched Netflix's Lost in Space and tell them to watch it because it's incredible. Thank you guys so much for being here, Burke and Matt. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Enjoy your Comic-Con, everybody. (laughs) You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 